Content discussed on this podcast may be triggering for some individuals. So if you feel like today you can't quite handle it, that's totally fine. You can press pause and come back another day. Remember, we're always going to be here. And if you need immediate help, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. everybody welcome to if you don't mind i am your host as usual madeline Sherrington. i am so sorry i've been gone for so long i went to europe which was such a big deal for me because a few years ago i didn't think i'd ever be able to like get on a bus by myself so the fact that i got on a plane multiple planes um and went to all these different countries is, you know, such an achievement for me. I actually met my partner in Italy, which meant I had to fly all the way by myself. It was fucking terrifying. I'm not going to lie. But the whole thing was so, like, I impressed myself, basically. I was really impressed with how far I've come and was able to achieve it's weird, but travel is is a privilege, right? The ability to travel, the, to have money to travel, it's a huge privilege. Um, and so I feel very lucky that I got to have that experience. Um, but uh, the other reason I've been gone a little longer is because I got back from Europe and I was absolutely exhausted. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to bust my nut trying to get this podcast out as soon as I get back. Because that kind of goes against the whole thing of, you know, looking after your mental health. There's no point in your mental health suffering, especially when it comes to a, especially when you're producing a podcast about mental health. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to take uh, a leaf out of my own book, practice some self-care, uh, practice some, you know, good boundaries when it comes to overexerting myself. Um, but we're here, we're back. And, uh, I have three episodes left for season one coming at you. And this is, of course, episode 10, which is fantastic. I can't believe we are here. I am so thankful for all the support that I've, you know, received so far. It's been absolutely amazing. So episode 10. The guest on this episode is a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine indeed. Her name is Katrina and she is hilarious and and so smart. She's such a fantastic writer. I remember reading her stuff when we were younger and just being so jealous because she has, I don't know, she has this way with words that a lot of people don't have. Uh, she's also a fantastic painter, um, just very artsy, and she's just smart, generally speaking. Um, she as I said, is one of my good friends and I really wanted to get her on because for the last, I wanted to get her on because for the last five or six years, she has been battling depression. Um, we've spoken about it at length in, in the past. Um, and when I first started this podcast, I really, really wanted to get her on. Um, but she wasn't in the best space. Uh, thankfully at the moment, she's doing really, really well and she agreed to come on and, it's it's a really good episode. I think the reason I love this one is because she kind of tells this very interesting story about how 
high school was such an important um, thing in her life because it gave her stability and and she was able to excel. Uh, But as soon as she left high school and that model um, was gone, that structure was gone, that's when she really began to struggle. It's an interesting conversation because we delve quite deep into that whole idea of, are we just setting young people up to fail? As soon as they get out of high school, we kind of just expect them to figure it all out and be able to get everything done. And is that an unrealistic expectation? I think so. I have a little bit of a rant there uh, halfway through. You're welcome. Um As usual, guys, a little bit of a trigger warning on this one. We do talk about uh, depression and uh, feelings of uh, worthlessness. Um, So if anything like that is too much for you today, that's cool. You can come back when you're ready. So please sit back, relax, strap in. If you're in the car, seatbelts always have to be on, people. Um, And let's do this. Episode 10 with Katrina. I hope you enjoy it. You need to turn it off because what if you get Look, a million I've been messages? saying this to kids all day. No, I didn't ask you to put it in your pocket. What I asked you was if you could put it in your bag. <laughs> I'm recording this now. <laughs> it's okay. If you could sit in your seat instead of ro- like roaming around the room, I would find that very, very helpful. <laughs> Quick five-second meditation. We are whole. We are good human beings. For the most part. For the most part. Welcome, Katrina. (laughs) I'm keeping it together. Okay. Um, Hello, Katrina. Hi, Maddie. Um, Katrina, we are friends. We are good friends. And I just wanted to say thank you for uh, saying yes to being on this podcast. (laughs) Because it's always awkward talking about this stuff with your friends. Well, um, we've talked about it before. We have. And I think it's more helpful that you know my story, but I will do my best to get it across for those listening at home. Oh, you've got to be amazing and articulate. You've got to be perfect. (laughs) You are one of the most intelligent people I know. I don't think that's the case. Best writer, best artist. Best shit stirrer. Oh, definitely. (laughs) On that one, I will take. (laughs) Okay, so for those listening, could you give us a little bit of an outline as to who you are and what you're about? Okay. I am currently a temporary casual teacher in Sydney. What a fun (laughs) role. It's it's a blast every day. What were you telling me before? You had to take kids on a bus today? I had to take 11 children on a bus. I lost two at one point. (laughs) Did a quick head count. Oh, you're meant to be here. Um, they did return in, you know, all arms and legs accounted for. Oh, so good. fine. Um, I will try to curb the humour which I use to deal with confronting conversations, but I can't make any promises. It's fine. I think a lot of people do this. It's and um, I've had depression for about five years now possibly longer I think it's longer possibly longer Um, I first was diagnosed eventually in 2013 that is actually six years as you can see I'm not a math teacher (laughs) I didn't say you were good at math though and um, I have a family history of depression I um, have slowly learnt to 
manage it because my depression is just a part of life and it's not a depression that will go away. Um, so it is a case of managing it and I've gotten better at it recently. So You've you're talking so to me much better at it. in a very up place at the moment um, and that's just been a lot of work, but I am here. And Maddie's mum is proud of me. Oh, my God, yeah. Mum is very proud of you. She's like, I'm so happy for Katrina. I was like, Mum, this is one of the ones you have to listen to because she says she'll listen to them, but she doesn't. I'm sure she listens to all of them and is very proud of you. <laughs> She's like, I just, there's too many stories and oh. I don't want to get bogged down in them. And I'm like, Mum, it's fine. I understand. Um, okay, so just to backtrack, you obviously said in 2013 that's when you were diagnosed with depression. So what kind of led you to that point? Um, so what you have to understand about depression is that there are a number of factors that um, psychologists or social workers or even teachers look out for in the way it develops. Um, so there are certain people who are always going to be more at risk for mental illness. And if you're looking at a checklist, um, one of the, the things to consider would be children raised without financial security, mm -hmm. children who are coming from not necessarily a broken home but an abnormal family um, development. A lot harder to see is children who are growing up in sort of an abusive environment. Mm -hmm. um, and the other big kicker is family history of depression. Oh, yeah. I love those genetics, baby. <laughs> um, curiously enough, throughout my adolescent years, my granddad... Um, who had always had depression, had two severe mental um, collapses, mental breakdowns, and was hospitalised. It was a massive thing for a adolescent person to kind of, for that to be their introduction to mental health, mm. particularly when you're watching it in someone you love and you, you can't help. Um, and you're super close to your... My granddad your is granddad. essentially my dad. Yeah. Um, so... He has always been, he taught me to shitster. <laughs> he has always been somebody who was particularly grumpy but um, uses humour and was there for me every day after school. But then to see him um, not able to talk, not able to eat, not able to sleep, um, to visit him in a mental ward in hospital um, and to try and really understand, like, an illness that you can't see. Mm. Um, was pretty massive when I was develop developing my understanding of mental illness. How did your mum like explain what depression was, or was there was there any explanation, or was it just something that you saw unfold? I could see it in him because I'd seen his character before and after, but her explanation she always was very forthright. Um, one of the things uh, you have to know about me is like I've always been. Thoroughly nerdy, curious, active learner um, and a voracious reader. So most of the things I was reading as an adolescent were like books about depression, really odd reading materials, but I kind of really wanted to understand what he was going through, see if I could help. And it's awful, but there's not a lot you can do to help. Mm. Um, and so we always had a like open acknowledgement that depression was something that was serious, that could take someone's life. One of the treatments he had was electroshock therapy. Mm. I was at a year 10 field trip while that was happening. Mm. Um, 
and it's like the threat of death it was he was willing to go through in order to treat this illness he ended up successfully kind of managing his depression he's a lot better now he um, still sees his therapist still in like goes to group meetings he's still on medication watching him deal with it manage it has kind of been good for me Mm. I was still awful dealing with it in myself (laughs) because it's so much harder though it's very visual to see in other people but when it's going on in your own head there's that little voice that says no you're not depressed you're just lazy yeah no you're not depressed everyone else has it much harder than you do and you're complaining about xyz and it's that insidious little voice that stopped me getting help when i recognized the first signs of depression Mm -hmm. so that it was my mum who was looking at it in someone else who recognised, hang on, there's something going on here. Mm. And, like, when you finally kind of started to realise that's what was happening with you, how hard was it to actually seek help? Because I think for so many people, as you just said, with depression, it's hard to kind of be, like, it's hard to recognise and you just say, you know, other people have it worse than me and therefore seeking help is also very difficult. The first time I sought medical help was awful. I went to my family GP who had treated me for chickenpox at the age of 11, who, you know, was was not necessarily a trained mental health professional. Yeah. And there was also, I think, a cultural um, misunderstanding on his part. And he was looking at this 20-year-old young girl who came into his office and said, I think I'm depressed. So his response was, everyone feels like that sometimes. (laughs) I left the doctors and I had built myself up to go to the doctors to say and recognise that, look, I think I need help dealing with this. I think I'm depressed. So that when he told me that and I walked out of the doctors, I cried and I could not stop crying for like two hours. I went to uni in a lecture and could not physically stop myself crying to the point that the next day the lecturer had asked me, are you okay? I could see you crying in the back of the lecture hall. Oh, my God. And by that point, I realised that, you know, everyone feels sad sometimes. <laughs> Clearly, I'm okay. Oh, and, like, and, I, and I'm sure, because a lot of us have had those bad experiences with, like, doctors and things, and although we feel anger towards that situation, we know that that person just doesn't have the training. And that's the no. thing. Like, how can people, how can doctors help us if they're not informed? And the worst part was there were so many mental health facilities and options available to me, particularly through university, and I didn't know about them. Mm. Um, I didn't seek them out, um, and that's just like a lack of education. And when you're in that particularly depressed space, you're not thinking clearly. No, you're not like, you I'm going to get help. on Google and um, I'm going to create a list of all the, the great places to go get help and I'm just really thinking clearly. No. No. So then the second time I sought medical help was at the insistence of my mum who had been like, well, you're depressed. And she took me to another doctor mm. who put me on a mental health plan. And that included the 20 free therapy sessions. You got 20? Oh, I was, you know, a special case at that point. Lucky. Lucky me. Um, and despite having a doctor say, okay, look, yes, I think you're showing the signs, you've done the tests, depression is most likely, 
I was incredibly reluctant to talk to the psychologist. Mm. Incredibly reluctant. I remember. I went, but I wasn't engaging in it effectively. But like, do you think that – why do you think that is? I think a lot of the times you have to find someone that you can look to and trust and see as a mentor or to see as somebody who you can talk to in a way. Um, so this particular therapist had asked me something about my personal life and I just clammed up. And I think it was partly that stigma of I am to blame for this, I don't want to address it and deal with it. And it's hard to do. Um, so that was kind of a time I should have said, well, this therapist isn't for me mm. and gone and found someone else. But that little insidious voice in my head, no, you're beyond help. No, no one can help you. No one wants to listen to you. X, Y, Z. But I think it's also really hard because you've obviously got yourself to the point where you're like semi-comfortable enough to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist and then you go in and you have a negative experience like of course you're going to be like fuck that I'm not doing that anymore I think that's a I think that's a relatively you know normal response like the first psychologist I saw like got me confused with someone else like he called me how small would you feel I felt so small like he yeah he he called me a different name and it was just like really weird and awkward and I was like "Mm." can't see you anymore and I was just like in my mind thought well then I'm just not cut out for this therapy thing clearly and it's it's not my fault it's not your fault and it's partially avoidance and this is hard and I don't want to do it it is easier to fall into bad habits and to avoid situation and let it deteriorate and continue suffering Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I think like avoidance and procrastination are hallmarks of kind of depression no (laughs) fuck off no, they're, <laughs> they're very common in conditions such as anxiety and depression because if there's just so much going on, you're so overwhelmed all the time by all these emotions. Like, it's that much more effort to go and seek help and to do those kind of, like, to get involved in those activities that ultimately will make you better. Yes. But oh. to get there... It's like when they're like, go for a run, and you're like, I know that it'll make me feel better when I'm doing it and after it. But to get off the couch right now, no. To leave my darkened room where I've laid in, in anguish for three days. What do you mean? I've got I tea. I've got some chips here. I'm not leaving. You definitely you make those things a catastrophe in your mind. This mm. is going to be awful. This is going to be terrible. And you don't feel like you are able to deal with it. Mm. Um, and that's not necessarily the case, but it feels like that. And when it feels like that, it is the case. Mm. Um, but seeing the psychologist that I now see um, helped me out in possibly the worst my depression got. I yeah would recommend to anyone listening who has had a negative experience to go and find someone that matches you. It's not you, and it is something hard, but you can do it. So. Yeah, exactly. And also... Psychologists and psychiatrists don't actually get offended if you're just like, mm, you don't work for me. You know what I mean? Like, if you're just like, I don't think we're vibing, I'm going to try to find someone else, they're not going to be like, <laughs> fuck you. They're going to go home and cry at night, actually. They but, you won't. Know. They don't care. They don't care. Um, I guess something I wanted to touch on as well it was obviously the fact that I think you mentioned just before university being quite a hard and stressful time for you. 
So how did that kind of play into your your experiences with depression and your like your recovery journey, all that kind of thing? Like how difficult was it for you to maintain that like university career? My university career has been a protracted series of failures, disheartening experiences, social anxieties, and I finally finished it last year. Fuck yes! I originally... And didn't tell any of her (laughs) friends like myself that that she had graduated. Can you imagine the surprise? Anyway, it's not about me. This podcast isn't about me. It's about you. It took me six years to do a four-year course. Um, I originally signed up for a Bachelor of Media and PR and Advertising, and that was the first year out of school where I had an exceptional level of burnout. My academic career in school had been incessant overachieving, um, but that was with the structure and support that school provides. So when I got into the real world, worked you know, maintained a social life. Um, And out of the pressure of university, I failed nearly every subject. I then, rather than think, hmm, this is a hard thing I'm trying to do and it is natural to fail and and come up against obstacles, dropped out and worked retail for a year. That was prior to recognising my mental health, but decided to go back and do an education degree. Funnily enough, all of the same challenges and roadblocks were there. Um, Particularly this was when I first was diagnosed, was first on antidepressants and wasn't um, regularly seeing a psychologist. Oh, fuck. Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, So naturally a lot of the same problems came up Mm. and they continued until in 2016 I withdrew from university without telling my family or friends and pretended to go to university rather than for an entire semester pretended to go to university without telling anyone that I wasn't going. Did you did did I think that you were at uni? Yes. I didn't know this. Um so this was a period where I was working two jobs and was essentially nearly the most depressed I'd ever been. And it was also the period where my mum was leaving a partially abusive or at least emotionally and um, verbally abusive relationship. Mm. And um, my mental health was declining rapidly. Um, And so I just didn't go to uni, withdrew from the course and did nothing Mm. other than worked without telling anyone. Naturally, the university then put me on suspension and in order to pick my life up from not doing anything with it, feeling utterly depressed, I had to say, okay, I'm going to go back to university and prove to 60 people in a essentially conference room that I deserve to be readmitted into university. How many people did you say? Oh, there was probably, it felt like 60. There was <laughs> like, probably what? like 16. But it That's felt just... like a. It was it was a large table. Hang on a minute. So you have to let me get this straight. You have to go in front of sixteen people and convince them you deserve to come back to uni. <laughs> so even though you've had all these like mental health, essentially issues. you could write a letter and yeah. not do the interview, and they had the um, ability to say, "Well, actually, no, we won't accept you." 
the advice I received from the um, mental health facility CAPS was you have the best chance if you do the interview. So I went into a room of 16 people and said, I've been thoroughly depressed. I lack motivation. Um, It's very hard to focus. It's very hard to keep up with the stresses of university and that is the reason that I've failed. But I am academically competent and am now motivated to finish my degree. Mm. You should therefore let me into university. Holy shit, the amount of anxiety. I did cry. Um, I, uh, it was fine. So I did that. I got admitted back in. I mean, we, why not? <laughs> and I did a reduced course load. It was a year in my life where university was still hard. I was still working, but I finally saw help. Mm. both from the university mental health services and my own psychologist. I think it's really interesting because I've spoken to a few people on this podcast actually about how they kind of come from high school where there is, it's, I mean, obviously there's a lot of problematic things with high school, especially, you know, I've spoken openly about all girls schools and Catholic schools and all that kind of stuff and all the, the way that we're pitted against each other. And there's a lot of, you know, we could talk about that after, but I think it's very interesting because it does provide a safety net. So then people come into university, they have no structure, they have to basically, you know, create their own routines all of a sudden, right? And we wonder why people fucking struggle and fail. And the thing is, yes, there is help in universities, but the amount of help that is available compared to the actual amount of people there is minute. And we don't know what services are available and how to access them. And it's an incredibly humbling experience to go and ask, oh, excuse me, I think I need help. And to be told, well, actually, it's first come, first serve on this particular hour of this particular day if somebody can see you. Yeah. Come back. Thanks. Perfect. And so then you leave feeling dejected and, you know, like there's nothing to be done. And that's how your mental health deteriorates further. And that's the thing is university isn't... Is, is difficult. Like, the coursework can be hard. The hours, although are not the same as school, can be long and the study's intense and the assessments are intense. And the fact that we kind of just assume that, oh, you've done the HSC, you're going to be fucking dandy. Like, I don't understand that. And that worries me, that people like yourself, and me too, just, like, struggle so much as soon as we get there because that model... It, it it doesn't it doesn't support people who do have those you know mental health conditions or disorders that are kind of slowly starting to kind of open up and flourish. I think a hundred percent. So one of the issues, particularly with overachievers or gifted, talented, whatever smart. jargon yeah, word really smart. you want to use, get it. <laughs> is that they slip under the radar. Um, so even yeah. at high school, if you're performing well, you're not necessarily getting the attention. Oh, this person's slipping. They have this X, Y, Z going on at home. Mm. But um, there's a mindset you can form where you are good at a subject. Let's say maths, even though that is not the case for me. (laughs) Math. You are good at that subject because there has been a teacher allowing you to practice, allowing you to get it wrong practice some more and you get a good mark in the exam and you go to the next exam and you get a good mark at the exam and you draw self-worth from that. Mm. You then remove the instructor instructor who deals with you every day, 
is invested in your emotional well-being and you suddenly fail at it. Mm. Your mindset, which has gone for I am good at math, is now I am bad at maths, I am bad at this, I am a failure. Mm. And so what typically happens at university is you need to develop your own mindset of I am a person outside of my achievements or big whoop, I can look at this setback as an opportunity to flourish and that's like that growth mindset and it's very hard to get on especially when you're in your early 20s and you have so many other things going on Mm. but university was particularly difficult for me because of the social anxieties that came across Mm. I didn't academically struggle it was going into a room full of people and having that again insidious voice mind reading catastrophizing telling you you're awful Mm. every minute of every day and it's a very easy thing to not go and to avoid it. Yeah, and I think with social anxiety, obviously, if you're in high school, you've had seven years to create a really strong friendship group. You know most of your peers, like even if you were shy to begin with, you've probably flourished into, you know, a comfortable person. And then you go to a university and there's like thousands of new people and you don't know any of them. What the fuck? Like, even even scary. not university. So even if you're talking about TAFE, even yeah. if you're talking about entering the workforce, like it is a very big thing to be leaving school mm. and dealing with it. And that I feel just exacerbates a lot of mental health conditions. Yeah. Um, and that's the way it is unfortunately do you think the fact that look you're a very intelligent person and and that's probably what a lot of people will say is that's your kind of that's your identifier you know like katrina's really smart and you can make the face at me viewers me listeners she's making the face yes i am making the face but no i'm not but yeah okay okay but for example that was kind of what you were identified as in high school right and a lot of people put a lot of emphasis on the fact that you were intelligent and you are smart and you can write well and you can do this this this. do you think the do you think that that ultimately although it it gave you confidence then was it kind of your undoing do you kind of wish that other parts of you were brought up as opposed to just just your intelligence i think there was a lot of pressure i put on myself to justify the sacrifice my mum had made by investing in my education Mm -hmm. and that pressure that I put on myself became my identity 100% and again it was always um, something that I had to prove that despite what was going on um, either at home or you know coming from housing commission or having a stepfather who would constantly once a month be like, you're useless, you're a waste of space, X, Y, Z. At least at school I was safe. I could do the thing. I could do the thing well. Yeah. I could do the thing better than others. I had something to prove. Better than most. Um, And that became, yes, 100% my identity. And that's fine. But the pressure that I put on myself didn't stop. Yeah. And that comes in the form of constant self, um, like, flagellation. Yeah. Um, So if you are not putting in 100%, you are letting everyone down. Um, If you are not achieving what other people are achieving, you are awful. Mm. And this constant litany of 
you can't do this, therefore you are awful. It's very black and white thinking and that's a trap that um, I personally dealt with in terms of my depression. And it, it didn't even need to be like an intellectual category you put yourself in. You could be a sportsman who is always been good at uh, AFL, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, and that becomes your identity. You are in a fixed mindset of this is the way the world works. I'm good at this. And then you have an injury and suddenly you can't do it. Your entire identity kind of shifts. Mm. Um, and so, and depression for me was that injury. Um, it takes away your motivation, takes away your ability to focus. Um, how are you meant to do an essay when there's a voice in your head saying, you are awful, you are the worst person in the world? Um, and again, how are you meant to focus on learning when your social anxiety is just telling you you need to leave this room, you don't belong in this room? Mm. Um, there's like a whole host of cognitive tasks and functions that are required to learn. Um, and if you have any sort of mental focus away from that, you're not going to. Mm. So it wasn't my fault. It hasn't disrupted my identity and I've learned to work around it. Um, but I think, yes, I look at myself as a more holistic person. I try to. I try <laughs> to be kind to myself. Yes. I think you're much kinder to yourself than you used to be. And I like that you have, have just said that it's not your fault. Yeah, because a lot of people blame themselves for things that, again, and a mental illness is not something you've inflicted on yourself. I have blamed myself for my depression for years. Mm. You are just lazy. You are just not motivated because you don't want to do it. it. Not you. Like it's mm. proven that depression affects your motivation. It it leeches the joy that you used to get from activities, mm-hmm. and. That is gone. So what is the point of doing the activities? Mm. Yes. So it's not your fault for not producing enough serotonin. No. You are not a bad person. Um, but it's taken me a long time to get there and I mm. still slip a lot. Mm. Well, as you said before, like it's kind of like it's always going to be there. And I think actually that's quite empowering because like once you know, once you're not in the space of, oh, I've got to beat it, I've got to beat it, I've got to beat it, and you're just like, okay, I'm going to accept this, you can put it in a box and be like, I'll, f- I'll deal with that when it decides to come out, but I'm going to keep on moving, which I think is quite freeing for a lot of people. Yeah, 100%. Um, for a long time I was trying to get rid of the depression. Yeah. And I'm sure that in some cases, depending on what your diagnosis is, that's an achievable goal. But you can't put yourself up to standards that aren't achievable. Mm. You have to set realistic goals. And for me, that is having strategies in place so that if I am flat, down, awful, not getting any satisfaction or joy from tasks I usually enjoy, um, I don't beat myself up about it. Mm. I try a different track. I make sure that the goals I'm setting for myself are small. Mm. 10-minute goals. Mm. Get out of bed goals. Um, And... And if you and if you you know reach those goals, that's commendable. And it's just a whole aspect of being really mindful of the way you're thinking. Mm. I've had a really good friend call me out at the movies. Um, I had spilled popcorn on myself, but in the mood that I was in, in the mindset that I was in, that was you fucking idiot, Katrina. Look at you. You can't even eat popcorn right. 
And that thought slipped into vocalisation. And she said, um, that's my friend you're talking about. Do you want to maybe not, you know, talk to my friend like that? And you don't even realise that the way you're talking and thinking about yourself and dealing with it isn't normal. Mm. Um, so just being really vigilant, so much, so much stuff. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about... Um this kind of uh, realisation we just spoke about briefly about anxiety because I know quite a lot of your journey was obviously being depressed. But how did you kind of come to realise that anxiety was also part of that diagnosis? I always put anxiety on the back foot. Um, funnily enough, anxiety is what my antidepressants treat. Oh, really? Um, so... Anxiety is the sense of this is going to be awful. You will not be able to deal with it. That rising panic, um, mind reading. Everyone in this room thinks you are a failure oh, and you are terrible. Um, and for me, I didn't recognise that anxiety because it didn't show up in the typical way of I am really afraid about this presentation I need to do at university. Mm -hmm. So I am going to do everything in my power and frantically try to do my best. Um, when I have anxiety, it collides spectacularly with my depression to the point of I am afraid of doing this. It will be terrible. Nothing really matters anyway. May as well lie in bed for three days. Wow. Okay. That's quite a lot of emotions in one go. Yes. So um, it wasn't until I saw the psychologist regularly and she pointed out the triggers to my depression that anxiety came up. And it is a case of social anxiety. Um, I've had two panic attacks in my life. Um, but those are my triggers and the way I deal with them is one time cutting off all, cutting off all my hair, um, but mainly <laughs> just going to supportive people, making sure my thoughts are accurate and realistic and not working myself up. Yeah, you haven't had any form of mental breakdown if you haven't then cut your hair yeah, right after. That was, that was fun times, going yeah. into Just Cuts, being like, yes, I'm aware that I have haphazardly cut my hair off. Would you be able to fix that for me? You also have like the most luscious, like curly hair. Well, I, I did before I cut it all off in a stream of panic. But yes. Um, oh, God. You cracked me up. I understand. Okay. So, you just, yeah. So, identifying those triggers has obviously really helped you. Yes. Understand what I'm going through and understand how to react in a more positive way. Mm. Do you think that, because I think for me, I, I'd never experienced depression until my anxiety got really bad and it was more of a kind of like a I'm depressed because I don't I'm too anxious to leave my house and therefore I'm not doing anything and I've lost the joy of life and blah 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 do you think that one came before the other or do you think that they've probably always both been there and they've just you know just been competing for your attention I think I definitely showed signs of anxiety from adolescence mm -hmm. and that was completely um not something I dealt with and it wasn't until I got depressed that the anxiety then exacerbated that. Yeah. So I think one came before the other but one was far more debilitating for me. Yeah that makes sense and I think like look I obviously have known you for a very long time and I never ever 
thought of you as someone who was anxious because you were I think loud yeah loud funny funny confident smart confident you didn't give a fucking shit when anyone thought of you or what anyone said you just did what you wanted to do and I was like oh okay I'll just gotta be like and Katrina I didn't particularly care what my peers thought no you didn't you didn't but- give a shit and, and it was a very impressive to be around as someone who gave a shit about everything and was so terrified of the world so when this whole anxiety thing came up for you I was like oh I did not I didn't even think of it and that's I hate I hate that I didn't think about it because just because someone's not showing signs of something doesn't mean that that's not going on for them and, and that's important. The things that I were, was anxious about what wasn't school. School was an incredibly safe place for me. Mm. I hadn't I didn't care what my peers thought about me because they weren't going to yell at me <laughs> or you know they weren't going to be utterly awful. Like I was incredibly safe, and that's um, something that. Not a lot of people who go through anxiety necessarily feel. Mm. I was lucky in that regard. But the things I would feel anxious about was things like performance, letting my family down, um, not being able to live up to expectations that really I'd placed on myself. But mm. yes, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you can't always tell. People show it in incredibly different ways. Oh, 100%. 100%. And also, like, anxiety is very, like, it can be embarrassing, and I think a lot of people, well, myself included, go to very great lengths to hide it because it's like it's it's a like when we're young, it's like a weakness thing. You don't want to be shy. You don't want to be seen to be like introverted because, as a society, we have a fucking thing against introverts for some reason. But that's a whole other topic. You just want to be seen as confident and outgoing and likable. And I feel like anxiety is kind of the op in our minds is the opposite of that, and it's just like. You just want to be cool. Well, you know what I mean, just want to be fucking cool. And anxiety not sure is not I manage the cool bit. Oh my god, but... you were cool, but we all just wanted to be cool. And anxiety is not cool, you know. When you no. know, and I have massive issues regulating myself around people that I did know um, in high school or in that environment. Now going out in social situations because there are times when I my my social battery depletes alarmingly fast mm. where um, I am at work and people say oh cheer up <laughs> Ooh, you're having a bad day and I've just walked in um, or I, I don't have feedback. the thank you <laughs> well now that you've said that I feel much better <laughs> oh, yeah. um, and I don't have the energy to hide that or I don't have the energy to be loud and funny and um, the person that they necessarily knew um, but then there are other times where um, there's that anxiety to perform that role, to mm. absolutely fit what they think of it as okay so that nobody knows that, hey, you haven't been to uni in three months. Like, that's a thing. Oh, my God, yeah. Keeping up appearances. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, I remember when I obviously first um, had my breakdown and I, I went on medication and I put all on this weight and I was like, oh, no one can, no one can see me because then – They'll be like, why has she put on weight? And then they'll be like, oh, is, is it is it because she's depressed? And why is she depressed? And blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, I just need to shut the fuck up. This is, Mind reading. This is too much, right? It's uh, just, it's, it's it's ridiculous because no one actually cares about what you're looking at or you're doing. I think one of the most liberating things you can realize is that people aren't thinking about you I at know. all. They're thinking about themselves because everybody is so terrified of 
everybody else judging them. Yes. And like you could be thinking, oh my God, I look so bad today. And they're probably thinking what happened to her when they're probably thinking exactly the same thing about themselves. They're, you know, they're worried that you're judging them because they're not, they're not, you know, they don't have an amazing career or they're not, you know, I don't know, succeeding in some way that they think they should be, you know. We're so hard on ourselves. Incredibly hard on ourselves. Oh, my God. Um, The thing I love is that you've now kind of gone into this path of teaching. Because I think, although I never thought of it, it just works so well with you. Like, that's that just makes sense, right? And now that you've gone through this, you know, pretty hectic experience of developing depression and going through treatment and, you know, at times, you know, going through really rough patches, how do you think that you're going to use that to then not necessarily help other like help young kids but to be informed with how you treat them and and you know um i guess teach them i've already had to call out two children this week one in year 10 and one in year eight who oh i'm just stupid i couldn't get that or uh i'm shit at maths i'm i'm just dumb and i think as small as it is Having someone pull you up on the way you think about yourself and talk about yourself and see yourself and say, no, you're not stupid. No, you're not dumb. This was a hard question. Give it another go. Or you don't get that subject, but that's okay. Um, And building that idea of self-worth otherwise, you know, in some other aspect of your life, um, that in itself helps. And I also talked to two Year 12 students today who asked me about my ATAR. Um, and I was thoroughly put on the spot because I haven't had anyone ask me about my ATAR since 2010. Oh, my God, what's an ATAR? Oh, Jesus Christ, yeah. Um, and I had to explain that I picked my entire future based on a number um, and that led to eight years of crap. Um, before I realised what I wanted to do and there are so many different avenues and there's so much pressure you're putting on adolescents and it's really hard to be a teacher and to have, let's say, eight classes of 30 students and to see each individual student. But if we can help students think about the way they are thinking about themselves, to think about the way they're regulating their emotions, mm. to think about the way that you have a safe space where you can come and talk to an adult, um, that in itself will help. And the system's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. But it's something that I'm looking forward to working towards mm. and to working with these kids. I, I love that. And I think having people with lived experiences especially with mental illness in important professions in society is really beneficial like can you imagine if you had a doctor who had a like an experience or a history of depression and was able to then have that inform his care you know what I mean like is wouldn't it be amazing to have teachers and other health professionals who had that experience so then they can kind of use that to inform how they treat people a recent study found that nearly 25% of teachers in Australia have depression. Um, and I think it was even a higher percentage for anxiety. And part of that is the workload and the stresses that they are under. Oh, my God, we put so much pressure on um, teachers. But it's incredibly important that we do have professionals with an understanding um, working with children who are just discovering or just embarking on their mental health journey. And I think a lot of people remember the things their teachers have said Mm. um, long after school. 
Not things like, hmm, pull your pants off, <laughs> take your hat off when you're inside. Why are you wearing lipstick? <laughs> All the boys but the will look at you. But the things um, are definitely remembered. So any small impact would be fantastic if I can get a job eventually. But, yeah, that's that's another thing. I remember I, was, I saw on Twitter, I think it was like a meme, and it was like, or something like that, and it was like, uh, thank you to my year 12 English teacher for getting me through, like, the hardest times of my life. I'm like, oh, my God, it's so true. Like, our English teacher was always so important. A hundred percent. The best thing my English teacher ever said to me was, if anyone says, I'm sorry, but, then they're not sorry. <laughs> they ain't sorry. They're apologising to keep face and you keep walking. Um, yeah, it's it's... It's a career that I'm really, really happy that I've ended up in. Mm. And bizarrely, some of the times where my mental health has been the best are when I'm actively busy and engaged in teaching and all of the stress that comes with it. And I have that routine in place and I don't have time to think about myself. I was going to say, isn't it interesting that the place that gave you so much structure and helped you so much is also now the place that you've ended up in your professional life? And I think it's part of recognising that I don't do well structuring my own time 100%. And well done you for, like, recognising that and, and being, being like, this okay is with it. Exactly, owning it. Um, and there are a lot more things I'm willing to fail at and be bad at now and not to expect myself to be perfect on, and I'm willing to do them anyway. Mm. And that's just, again, that self-awareness of it's okay, you can have a growth mindset about it, you can be bad at something and do it and get better. And that's what my education journey is about at the moment from the other side of the desk. Oh, my God. I hope you teach my future children if I decide to have children. <laughs> Lennon, uh, who I knows? I saw what you were like at school, so that's not likely. <laughs> what does that mean? That was brilliant. You'll walk them into the office and you'll be like, kids, you see that? You see that? You see that award board, school captain, two thousand and ten. You better be your school captain, or you're you're not coming home. No, for one, they're not going to Catholic school. <laughs> yes, I don't teach at the Catholic school. Katrina, um, we're nearly out of time, um, but I do have one final question, and that is for any young person who. I guess, has has left high school, is in university and is starting to really struggle um, with their mental health, particularly anxiety and depression, what would you would you say would be your best piece of advice to them in, in terms of how to seek help and how to kickstart that, that journey? Firstly, you just have to know it's not anything you're doing or not doing or it is not actively your fault. Um, yes, life is hard for everyone, but some people have more roadblocks about the, around the way. And if you recognise that you are feeling a certain way, you are struggling to get out of bed is the worst example. But for instance, you don't take pleasure in an activity that you took pleasure in. You aren't comfortable around people that you'd normally would be comfortable around. You are struggling to see the point of carrying on altogether. That's the way you're feeling now in this moment. You need to go and get help and it will be a humbling, hard, awful experience. But you will thank yourself later on. That's incredibly awful no. advice that adults give you. But it's true. eventually 
we have to be right. <laughs> if you can go and tell someone you trust, someone that you know will be there for you, they will help you go and get medical attention. That doesn't necessarily need to be a parent. It could be your friends. It could be a adult in your life who has time for you, is around. If you can ask for help, to ask for help, that helped me tremendously. The other thing that I would recommend is don't feel like you need to have your life together. You don't. You are so young. You are a baby. Yes, you are out of school. You don't have to wear the school uniform anymore. Yes, you can drink. You are nowhere near being a, um adult who has their life in order and that's okay um you need to do what's best for you and that involves taking care of yourself that was a really long answer go and ask for help to ask for help that is like an amazing tagline and some organization needs to use that ask for help to ask for help yeah It, it was incredibly hard to seek help so ask for help just to say i need to go and do this and have someone to hold yourself accountable to and mm. don't that won't let you give up on asking for help mm. no that makes sense it's very wordy no it's perfect i mean it's you it's always going to be wordy <laughs> thank you katrina thank you madeline <laughs> hi maddie's mum <laughs> Hey guys, how did you find that episode? If you're like me, you loved it. <laughs> I told you, Katrina's really, really uh, articulate, has an amazing vocabulary, like those some of those words. And we were recording this at like 7 o'clock at night, like I can't even form basic sentences at, at that time, so she's just overall very impressive. And you know what, Katrina, if you're listening to this right now, which I hope you are, I fucking love you. You are amazing. So before this podcast ends, obviously I do need to do a quick little social media roundup, if that's all right with you. Um, (laughs) If you type in, if you don't mind to Facebook, you'll find us there. You can like, um, leave a comment, whatever you like, say hello. Um, If you don't mind, podcast is our Instagram handle. So please follow us, uh, like our stuff, comment, you know, just interact. We, We love to hear it. Again, I say we, it's just me. Um, If you want to send me an email regarding um, anything that's been discussed or if you'd like to be on the show, you can hit me up at ifyoudontmindpodcast at gmail.com. And there are now two ways that you can uh, show your support for the show. You can become a patron. Um, If you go to Patreon and type in If You Don't Mind, you'll find us there. Um, And if you wanted to give a one-off donation, you can also PayPal us. That's right, we've got a PayPal account, which you can find in the bio of our Instagram. As usual, guys, please be kind to yourselves, be kind to everybody else, and when you can, listen to someone else's story, because you never know, maybe the way that they tell it or the thing that they tell you will change the way you look at the world, and that's that's a really good thing. See you later.